This is the We Are Her podcast for survivors of abuse or assault to share their stories. I'm your host, Emily Kemp, and I'll be having a conversation with a different survivor each week. I want to be sure to include a strong trigger warning with this podcast. The content we discuss includes topics related to violence. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the We Are Her podcast. Um, I'm just going to have you maybe take a second and introduce yourself. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm Nicole Mooring, and I'm the founder and executive director of Voices of Change 2018. Yeah, and where are you? Where are you located, Nicole? Here in Cleveland, Ohio. Tuning in from the Midwest. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. And do you mind me um, asking kind of how you heard about We Are Her and how you got connected with the podcast? You know, um, I believe it was either, it was on a social media platform. So I'm not sure if it was Instagram or Facebook. Um, it was one of them. Um, and I, you know, started following um, the page and just, you know, I love when, you know, other people are really trying to advocate and, you know, promote and bring awareness to sexual abuse and, you know, have people talking about it because it's such an epidemic and people need to be talking about it more. Um, and it was just really intriguing to see what Stevie's doing and um, yourself and um, just very inspiring. Yeah. And you're doing this work too, which is really amazing. I'm glad we could kind of combine forces. So um, thank you for introducing yourself, first of all. And second of all, I, the way I kind of like to do the podcast is sort of to have our guests start telling their story wherever they feel the most comfortable or wherever it makes the most sense to them. So I'm just going to kind of turn it over to you and however you want to start sharing, um, go for it. Um, so I am actually the survivor of domestic um, abuse from my first marriage. Um, and both of my kids are actually survivors of, my son's a survivor of sexual abuse and my daughter's a, a survivor of sexual assault as well as emotional and verbal and mental abuse uh, from her father. So, I was in my um, first marriage. We were married for 12 years and I dated him for about five before we got married. And unbeknownst to me, the abuse began, you know, slowly, you know, it was that gaslighting stage and I didn't see it. Um, you know, they say love is blind and it's true. It's a true statement. Um, you know, and it would start out, you know, with just the real general um, insults. And over time, it became more and more and the psychological warfare and the, the put downs and, you know, um, you're fat, you're ugly, you're not good enough, you'll never amount to anything, you know, th those kind of things. And it was just repeated constantly. And uh, he was very controlling and narcissistic. and. Um, I wasn't seeing it because I, I had gotten to the point that as time went on, I was so incredibly brainwashed and the people that would tell me, I would get on the defense and I would stick up for him, um, not realizing what I was doing because, you know, I, you just didn't, I didn't. Um, when you're in it, that's, it's so hard to have enough of a perspective in order to really get clarity around what's happening. And that's, that's what abuse is intended to do. It wants you to doubt yourself. You know, it wants you to second guess your yourself. That's what he had been conditioning you to do. So it makes sense that you would, you know, see things that way or, or behave that way. For sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And now looking back, I mean, obviously, I have a totally different perspective, but going through it, you, you don't know. And um, so, you know, that, of course, you know, went over a long period of time. And, we were unable, well, he was unable to have kids. So we adopted both of our kids. 
And um, when my daughter Macy was born in 2003, and um, he was an excellent dad for that first year, um, he does have a drinking problem. So the drinking, I noticed, became more excessive. And with that, um, the abuse became more excessive. Um, And the control became so excessive as far as what I was allowed to do and what I couldn't do. So I became very isolated, um, choosing to, because, you know, it was very embarrassing. Um, and so I think subconsciously I knew what was going on, but yet I didn't want the world to see. I didn't want my family and friends to see what I was going through. So I would put on this facade and paint the smile on when I'd be around people. But little did I know, everybody realized it. Um, they saw how unhappy I was. And, you know, the only thing that at that point I was happy with was my daughter and being a mom, you know, cause that dream had finally come true. And so things, I, I knew we were headed South. Um, we tried the counseling and, you know, it was never his fault. It was always my fault. And the lies I would be asked to tell, um, to his family, you know, it became so excessive that I couldn't remember what was truth, you know, fact from fiction. And I'm, I'm just like, who is this person? I, I don't know you. Um, so, you know, all that starts adding up and it becomes more and more and more. And so in the midst of all this, even though I know this is going on and I truthfully was miserable and I knew at that point I wasn't in love with him. Um, and quite frankly, looking back, I was never in love with him. I was lo- in love with the idea of having kids, being a mom, really. Um, but in the midst of all this, we get a phone call from the adoption agency and they have a little boy. And I was like, you know, I'm an only child and I hated it. I still hate it. <laughs> um, <Right. laughs> so I was like, oh my gosh, you know, here, you, you know, then I'd have a sibling for Macy and my daughter's Macy. And so we adopt this little boy. and. Um, He's placed as a, you know, healthy, healthy Caucasian newborn and um, everything's great. And about four months into it, he's about four months old. And all of a sudden, I didn't have to give birth to know something wasn't right. Something was wrong. And I heard everything um, from my ex-husband, you know, it was, you know, you're, you're stupid. There's nothing wrong with him. He's the second child, you know, Macy's doing everything for him, you know, all of that. And lo and behold, he was diagnosed, diagnosed with a genetic disorder, um, as well as autism eventually. Um, told, we were told at 14 months old, he'd never walk, he'd never talk. I mean, we were given the, worst case scenario ever based on textbook material, basically. Um, and in this time, my ex had become more of an alcoholic, um, washed his hands of, he, he really wanted nothing to do with our son. You know, he wasn't going to be the, the football player and the jack and, you know, etc. Um, and I just consumed myself into, I'm the type of person, if somebody tells me, no, that's a challenge for me. Um, and I took those words, the doctor told us, and that just gave me so much ambition to prove them wrong. So we had, I had him in everything, every possible therapy imaginable. And, and I say this next statement with love. Um, he is talking, he does not shut up. Um, (laughs) and I say that with the utmost of love because he is just the, Oh, I mean, me too. So, you know, (laughs) um, sometimes you're just born a talker, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But you know, all those things that I was never told, he'd never walk, he'd never talk and he's doing it all. And you know what? Things were delayed, but you know what? It's all those milestones that, it was delayed, but you know what? It's okay. That's him. That's what makes him, you know, that's what makes Evan. His name's Evan, Evan, Evan. And, um, so going through all this and, you know, our marriage is, you know, it's already broke and it's just, it's shattered at this point. And I didn't care. Um, and the straw that broke the camel's back. Do you, can I just ask if, do you think that's because of the kiddos and kind of that bigger purpose that they gave you? 
for me to realize things? Just kind of, no, just kind of like being, you know, coming to this place, this realization of like, you know what, it's real, the marriage is bad, but I don't care. Do you think that's just kind of because the kids? I think that helped. I think that definitely helped. Yeah. I I only ask because I, I, um, an interesting statistic that I learned about when I was doing domestic violence work was that, you know, the self-reported number one reason that women choose to stay in an abusive marriage is for their kids, but also the self-reported reason that that women uh, choose to leave their abusive marriage is also because of their kids. And so I think kids can be like a huge, you know, turning point and this like space where there's like some new awareness and clarity gain because there's like this higher purpose. Sure. And I can see where it could go either way. I'd like to think that it would go in the favor of your doing it for your own safety and for the safety of your kids. Right. And I think that's the direction it goes a lot. But at first, a lot of times, because some abusive parents aren't abusive to their children, or maybe it takes a while, or they can be a good parent still. And so sometimes that other spouse is like, oh, we got to make it work for the kids or, you know, we, you know, we got to stay together as a family. But at some point, when things get to a certain place, I think kids you know, that, um, yeah, kind of that, that turning point for someone to have a new level of awareness. And, and I think just at that point, I, you know, my kids are my life they, from the, from the day Macy was placed with us, you know, I mean, and even before that, that was always something from, you know, the time I was, you know, five or six, you know, I knew I always wanted to be a mom. And so no matter what, their needs are always before mine. And while I never wanted to be the product of divorce because I was raised Catholic, and although I don't practice Catholicism anymore, um, I was still raised that way. Um, my parents are divorced, so I know what it feels like um, to be a child of you know divorced parents. Right. But I, and, and my parents got along amicably for me. So I wasn't in a situation like that, but still, it still hurts. Oh yeah. Um, and I knew my ex and I had a very ugly relationship. We had an ugly relationship married. So I, I knew, not, you know, not being married, it, it was going to be that much uglier because that control was going to become even worse. And it did. Um, so you know, I, I really think I was done already. And I think, yeah, I think, to, you know, I hope, I hope I answered your question. Yeah, no, I just, um, I was hearing some of those parallels and I was like, yeah, I mean, I could definitely see how, you know, needing to, to do what's best for your kids or um, having them be the thing that's the most important can sometimes cause that person to have like, you know, the person who's being controlled. I can take this crap to a certain degree, but I can't let my kids go through it too. Um, And I just, yeah, I just appreciate too that perspective of like, you know, it was bad enough while you were married and trying to kind of like keep the peace, but knowing that a divorce would just um, take things, you know, the control to the next level. I think that's a really common experience because a lot of abusive people will escalate their violence when they feel like they're losing control. So leaving or divorce, like that's kind of the ultimate loss of control. And, um, your intuition obviously was like very spot on with that. And I can see that that's interesting statistics that you brought up. I, I never thought of it that way, but that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I just kind of was hearing those parallels, but, um, yeah. So, so here you are, mom, you know, trying to like keep, keep the family together and you could see the marriage going south. And then where did things kind of go from there? So the straw that broke the camel's back was he hit me. And up till that point, I mean, you know, abuse is abuse, no matter what, what form it is. Um, and I don't know why in my head that, that was it, you know, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And I don't know why, I mean, because any abuse up to that point, you know, to me, physical abuse, you know, that's that bruise heals where this emotional and psychological and this mental abuse, you know, I'm, we've been divorced since 2008 and I'm still, you know, that still haunts you. And in the psychological component of that is strong. Um, and so that was it. And I, 
had the police escort him out and had a restraining order. And, you know, it's embarrassing, you know, you're, you know, this good family and, you know, we lived in a great neighborhood and I mean, it was embarrassing, but I knew what I had to do for the safety of me and the kids. Um, I was tired living in fear. You know, I had my, I had in my trunk, I had clothes for me and the kids. My purse was always in my trunk. I'd hide my car keys. Um, I started having a separate account, you know, from work. I started having a separate savings account, um, money drawn and, you know, out of my paycheck going, you know, into this account. So he didn't know about it. No way to live your life. Um, So, but also really smart of you too. I have to applaud like the resiliency and strength of survivors because I always tell survivors, you know, you're your own best expert. You know your situation better than anyone, and you it, do, it doesn't always take you know reading a book or to be able to know how to survive your situation. And that's what you were doing is you were surviving. Um, and no, no one should have to live like that. But I also think on the flip side, there deserves to be some sort of acknowledgement that what you were doing was so strong, and you were doing whatever it took, you know, on whatever level to make sure that you and your kids were going to be okay. And that's, I mean, that's pretty impressive. That's, that's resiliency. When it got to the point where the garage door would go up and the, the, the pit in my stomach was so severe because you didn't know what was walking in the door. I didn't know how long he had been at the bar, what he'd been drinking, because that's what we got to. And, you know, that's no environment for the kids. Um, and, you know, if I had a glass in the wrong spot, you know, I got in trouble for it. I mean, that's just what we resorted to. And um, I just, I couldn't live like that anymore. So we got divorced in 2000, separated in 08, got divorced in 2009. And the day that gavel went down, my, my life started. I mean, best, I've never looked back, best day of my life. Um it caused a lot of issues. Um, my daughter was five. She hated me. Um, it was my fault. I was the mean one. And that hurt. You know, you have a daughter, you want to have that bond with your daughter. Um, and I, from the day we got divorced, I promised to myself, I would never speak ill of him because my mom didn't do that with me about my dad. Um, and, you know, I, I made my own judgments based on my own feelings, not on what her belief. Right. But you, ha- you have to get to that place yourself, you know, and it's really wise to do that with kiddos, too. Um, I also wanted to point out, too, I think this is really interesting, and I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but oftentimes um, we talk about, you know, children being affected by abuse. And one of the ways that that can happen is they will often take out their feelings of like anger or rage or um, upsetness or disappointment on the parent who was the victim in the situation because that parent is safe. They won't be mad or show rage or be upset with the parent who's abusive because they know if they do that, they can get in trouble or end up hurt. So they will sometimes, you know, so the parent that the child is maybe like taking out their their feelings on, while that's unfair, it means that you were the safe one because they knew they could express themselves around you and not get in trouble or get hurt. So I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but I always like to point that out when I hear that. Yeah. And so from the outside looking in, it can be really hard for people because they're like, oh, they don't want to be with their mom. They say they want to be with their dad or they say they hate their mom and they're angry at their mom. That does not mean that that mom or that parent, any gender, obviously, is the abusive one or the bad one. It just means that they feel safe enough to express that around them without fear of retribution of some kind. Um, So I just wanted to put that out there and yeah, just affirm that, you know, I'm sure that sucked, but it's because it meant your kids felt safe around you. Wow. I never heard of it from that perspective. It makes sense wow. though. When you, when you it totally makes them, sense. Oh God, yeah. Right. Yeah. They would yeah, never do that to sure. him because they're afraid of him. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, she was deathly afraid of him. And she knew if she could be angry around you without you, you know, re- retaliating. That's interesting yeah. insight. Yeah. Just thought I'd throw that out there. 
Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, okay, so backing up, you are now going through, or, you know, the divorce is over and the kiddos are starting to kind of express how it has affected them. Yeah, so, you know, we, Macy and I were, it was, it was rough for a long time, um, for many years. And it was, you know, that psychological warfare and, you know, he was brainwashing her and, um, then I met, I met someone and they, the kids, I would not let him, me, them meet him, um, until I knew for sure. And finally, you know, I was pretty certain and, um, they finally met him and then it became, well, mommy doesn't love you guys anymore. She only loves Chris and, you know, all these things and it unnecessary, you know, um, but again, that controlling narcissistic manipulative mindset, um, so then, you know, we, we have these, you know, challenges to overcome then because of now this new situation. And so in 2013, I got remarried and, you know, the kids have a good relationship with him, but in the beginning it was rocky because of all, all this negativity that was being fed through their dad. Um, so things and my relationship with him was just ugly. I mean, I don't know that it could have been uglier. Um, not proud of it, but it was. I mean, it is what it is. And I would try to keep my, you know, I would bite my tongue so many times so I wouldn't react in front of the kids. Um, and it wasn't easy. <laughs> it wasn't easy at all. Um, so I, in 2016, I have always been a firm believer that, um, with kids, you talk about sexual abuse and I had always given them their talk about, you know, nobody touches you where the bathing suit goes. And even Evan, you know, even Evan with his special needs, you know, he is higher on the spectrum and, um, you know, his cognitive level, you know, he's higher in, in things. So, he, you know, he understands things. Um, and I've never let him use that as a crutch or anything, you know, he still is accountable for things. And, um, so I've always given him, him the speech just as I've given Macy. And so January of 2016, just happened to give him the speech again. And unbeknownst to me, I didn't realize how the conversation was going to turn. And he says, he discloses to me that someone we knew or we know, um, sexually abused him. They molested him. And I just, I believed him. I knew it. I knew with every ounce of my being, there was no question in my mind. Um, but what do you do? What do you do? Um, you can prepare yourself and you can talk about it. But the reality is we all talk about it. We can get to that point, but then what, what do you do? Right. And as a parent, that's gotta be so freaking emotional. And it's like, how do you, how do you keep someone else calm while you're freaking out? Or like, how do you provide him a sense of security when your whole world is just blown up? I mean, to have to hold that space is so intense. I mean, I, I was, because you don't expect it because let's face it, it's never going to happen to me. It's never, it's not going to happen to me, you know? Um, so we, we sat there, I, I sat there with him and we talked about it and everything that he told me, there was no way, there was no way he would know these things. Um, which convinced me even more that he was telling the truth. And, um, so I just said, you know, I was proud of him for telling me. I believed him. He was safe and we would take care of it. So, but I didn't know what that meant. Right. <laughs> right. I'm telling him, trying to convince him, although I'm not convinced myself because exactly. what the hell does this mean? <laughs> right. What are the implications of this? Where do you go from there? Who do you tell? Like, what is the process? Right. Right. So. And then I didn't realize what was to unravel after this. So um, I tell my husband and, you know, we're, we're both, both mortified. And um, 
I chose not to call my ex-husband for obvious reasons <laughs> to tell him. And um, my daughter was seeing a psychologist at this time um, because of all the, you know, intense psychological crap that she had gone through and was still going through. So I called her up and I said, Evan just discloses this to me. What do I do? And of course, unbeknownst to me, she has to report it. I didn't She's know. She's a mandatory reporter, right? Right. And I had no idea. You know, I didn't know what this whole thing looked like. Um, so we start the ball rolling and child services gets involved and he goes in, he has a forensic interview. He has the forensic medical and the police start getting involved to start their investigation. And I get a call only to say that it was unsubstantiated. And I was like, what? <laughs> There's no way. There's no way. Like, And that's from the police? They, they're they the ones who said it was unsubstantiated? No, this was from child services. Oh, okay. Oh. And the reason it was, was because in a forensic interview, as I'm sure you know, I, I don't know the listeners, but I'm sure you know this. They're asked a question. Do you know the difference between a tru the truth and a lie? Well, Kids that have special needs don't know how to answer that question. They do know, but they don't know how to answer that question, how it's presented. So Evan's answer was no. So they unsubstantiated it. And so his perpetrator. Which, oh my her. gosh. I also just thank you so much for being so, um, you know, like open with your, with the story of your son and his special needs, I think it's so important to touch on the fact that uh, people with special needs, people with disabilities are at a much, much higher risk of being abused or assaulted. And then the system doesn't know how to approach those situations uh, in an educated manner. They just don't know what they're looking for. They don't know how to ask the certain questions. And so, first of all, I'm just so freaking sorry that that was your experience and that was Evan's experience. And also, I think it probably happens a lot more than we even know. Um, and to be able to spread some awareness about that is so key. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I was mortified when I started to unravel even more um, as time went on. And, and, I'll, and I'll get into that a little bit more. But but you're right. I mean, this the special needs population... Um, they are, they're four times more likely to experience violence. And when you think about that, I mean, it's disturbing enough to know that anyone has to endure it, but you have a child with any kind of a disability, you know, cognitive or physical, it's just, that just puts that at such them at such a disadvantage. Um, so, and they're not believed they're not believed. Um, so because they communicate differently, and therefore it must mean that it's not true. Exactly. And that's not fair. And that's where the, the justice system is. It's very discriminatory when it comes to kids with special needs. Um, so we get, you know, we get through this portion of it. And um, again, back to my statement in the beginning you know, you tell me no. And I see that as a challenge. Like I, I'm, I knew he was telling the truth. I knew something had to be done and I wasn't going to give up, but what does that look like? Right. You know, I mean, they unsubstantiated it. So all I can think of was this person is out there and let's face it. There's probably other kids. Um, and how do I prevent this from happening again? So fast forward, that's still 2016 and um, middle of the end of summer. So fast forward to June of 17 and Evan starts having these horrific, horrific meltdowns like I've never seen. I can't even, they're, they're indescribable. Um, they would last anywhere from a couple minutes to four or five hours. Uh, probably four hours was probably max. And it was nothing like, 
I didn't get my way. I didn't get a cookie after dinner. It was nothing like that. I mean, these tantrums were, they were violent. They were, I, I, like I said, I can't even describe it. Um, my husband, like clearly coming from somewhere like deep. Yeah. And you knew it wasn't him. Like you could look into his eyes during one of these and you knew he wasn't there. It was crazy. We took a CPI class, which is, you know, a protection class, how to handle him during these, you know, like different movements, different hold patterns that we could not only protect him, but protect ourselves. Right. Um, and, you know, my daughter, um, you know, he would just anything within arm's length would be, you know, picked up, thrown. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of things that were broke. I mean, we we were homeward bound for for months. So this COVID thing, this is, this is nothing right now because they're <laughs> like, we got this. It's cool. We got this. <laughs> I'm used to this. Um, so I started logging, you know, like, is there an antecedent is, you know, is it a food? Is it clothing? Is it a person? Obviously environmental, like we're at home. So, you know, kind of can remove that out of the equation. We're not going anywhere because I, my gosh, if he does this in public, I mean, how would you, how would you handle this? Right. So start, you know, logging all this. We have a behavior specialist coming into the house. We have about 20 hours a week, strict. It's ABA applied behavior analysis coming into the house, working with him, thinking that was going to be the end all. And that was going to help. That's not helping. And she's even saying, this isn't a behavior. This isn't Evan. Evan's never acted like this before. Right. Um, can't figure. He's it trying out. to tell you something. Right. Right. But we can't have no idea. Can't figure it out. So we get all the way through. He starts school in August. I tell them I go to school. You know, he's on an IEP. You know, an, individ an individual education plan because of his special needs. I set up a meeting with the principal, the special ed director, the intervention specialist, speech therapy, everybody sat down. I explained what's going on. I said, I haven't a clue as to why. I don't know why. But all I can tell you is this is what he's demonstrating at home. I don't know if you're going to see it here. But I was being transparent. You know, right. work with me. You know. Yeah. Fortunately, you know, this is the start of sixth grade. We're in middle school now. He's got a lot of friends. I mean, you know, life's good for Evan. Um, but not at home. We can't figure this out. So still racking my brain. And, you know, you take them to psychiatry and all they want to do increases meds. No, no, that's not the answer. Like for me, that wasn't the answer. Um, you wanted to get to the bottom of it. Yeah. Not just mask symptoms. So we get all the way through the school year up until April of 18. And all of a sudden he starts having these at school. How humiliating for the poor kid, but he can't control it. Can't control it. So again, still trying to figure it out. You know, now the school's getting mad and I'm like, you know what? I came to you. Now I'm mad at the school because I'm like, I came to you. I've been honest with you. I'm not hiding anything from you. Like, what good is that going to do me? Right. So, we, you know, thankfully we're at the end of the school year. Um, so that's in April. We get through the end of the school year. Um, we have a couple handful of incidences at school. So in June we decide um, there was a graduation party. And so we brave it. We decide to be brave. And my husband and my daughter and my son and I, we go to this graduation party. And I have to admit, I was scared to death because we haven't gone anywhere. We have not gone anywhere, all four of us, um, because of these meltdowns. So we go to the graduation party and kids were with me. So my cell phone's in my purse and I don't realize that my daughter keeps texting me. I want to go, please. Can we go? Can we go? Can we go? I mean, just incessantly texting me. Well, later on that night to find out as we were on our way home at the graduation party, she was sexually assaulted. And I just, 
I'm like, oh my gosh. So now both my kids are national statistics, right? And I'm like, how does this happen? How does this not happen once, but twice? And I'm like, I am not going to, I'm done. Like, like now that mama bear, like Mm -hmm. I just rose to a new level. Yeah. So I called, I called child protective services and I reported it because now I know what to do. Right. So we start the ball rolling. We go through the whole process and um, it's substantiated. And she starts the, they start the um, police, you know, investigation. So it's during this time we're going through this and all of a sudden, and I really truly believe it's because that happened and not that I wish that that happened because I don't, but I think it was a knee jerk reaction for Evan. Evan discloses for the second time that he was abused again. And so now I'm going through Macy's case and now I have Evan again, same perpetrator for Evan as the first time. Um, Macy's perpetrator was different. It was not the same as Evan's. I called a social worker up and she was quite upset. She's like, I've never had this happen. And I'm like, she goes, what can I do? I'm like, put him behind bars. Right. You're like, like I don't know. What, what can, can do? you do? You're the one in the system. I'm just trying to, you know, figure out what the hell. Oh yeah, man. Right. Yeah. So, um, we start the ball rolling on this one. So now I have two cases I'm trying to keep, be sane about, um, and you know, keep my sanity. Um, so Macy's is moving along great and there's nothing great about our justice system. Let's be honest. But if I have to say, for Macy's case, they, they meaning the prosecutor, the um, probation's officer, the judge, the detective, they were so, so caring and so conscientious of what she had been through and what she wanted to see out of it. And for the person that, you know, assaulted her and they really it was impressive. I have to say that it really, she got justice. He had jail time served, um, mental health assessment. I mean, uh, he's on the registry for 15 years. I mean, I was hell bent. I mean, he had to be, I mean, you're not going to get a slap on the hand. I'm done. I'm sick of these perpetrators just, Oh yeah. Okay. That's it. Your day in court's done and go out and do it again. Like, you know, like stop, you know, so, well, and most perpetrators are repeat offenders. So, you know, by Macy speaking up and you guys taking action, it probably prevented him from doing it again to someone else. But the likelihood that there had been many other people before Macy is very high. And so, you know, it is, you're, you are trying to like break a cycle by doing that. Sure. Absolutely. So, you know, her case is moving along and, um, so we start on Evan's case for the second time, go through the forensic interview, the forensic medical, and it is substantiated this time. Um, and I had, I, I have to be very cautious on what I'm saying because we still, even though that was in 2018, we are still in, uh, criminal processes. And, um, but I, I wish I could say more because there's been a lot to the case um, that's been extremely disheartening. Um, but the police got a hold of the case. And what I can say is we were discriminated against. Um, I had requested um, some things that were not done. Um and it took, it, it's taken, I mean, obviously it's been two years. Um, I mean, he just closed July 23rd of 18 and it's July 1st of 2020. And um, I mean, I, I'm fighting it still. And um, to say we've been discriminated against is putting it lightly. Um and it's because he has special needs and they don't want to believe him, even though the content of what, what has been done to him and what was done, what was done to him, I should say, 
was beyond monstrous. Um, no kid would know this stuff. Um, th this child is, I mean, I monitor everything, you know, I monitor his internet time. I mean, his, what he watches on TV. And even if you didn't, I mean, even if a parent wasn't as, you know, I'm a helicopter mom as my kids call right. me. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I'll take it. I'll take it. That's okay. It's the worst things. Right. Um, but even if I didn't have that namesake, um, <laughs> you know, you, they still wouldn't know this content unless it happened right. to them. Right. And you're also their mother and you know, your children and you, you know, I, we tell people to trust their own instincts. I also think as a parent, as a guardian, as someone whose job is to be in tune with your children, you should also listen to your own instincts on that as well. You know, you, you went through, abuse with your ex-husband, you know what that feels like, you know your children, you know, you know, you know them. And to be able to really like not, I think a lot of parents, because the reality is so scary, it's like, oh, oh, they must be over-exaggerating or making it up. And the system does that and schools do that. And I think some parents might do that, but I, I do, I just, you know, one of the big messages of our podcast is to listen to your gut listen to those instincts. And if you as a parent is hearing inside yourself that something is wrong, that you believe them, you know, to trust that. And, um, and that's hard. I mean, that is hard. We're conditioned to not believe ourselves, <laughs> especially as a, as someone who is a survivor as well, you know, and having to go through all of your own stuff while also trying to help your children go through their stuff. I mean, that's, hard you're like am I projecting am I reading into things but if your instincts are telling you that something happened I you know I just can't reiterate enough for folks that they should be listening to listening to their instinct listening to absolutely because chances are you're not wrong right so yeah so that's where we're at right now you know still um you know I'm hell-bent on still moving forward and um if I can relay any message to anyone um don't give up because i think that's what's so wrong with you know and it not just for special needs kids although that's you know what i'm advocating for but for any any person that's been a victim of any any kind of abuse when you're dealing with the justice system it's in my my personal opinion they want you to just say forget it. This is too, this is too much. That, that makes their jobs easier. Let's be honest. Um, and then you're not getting your, you're not getting justice. You don't have closure. You're living with those demons the rest of your life because of that. That person's still out there. And to your point before, you know, they've probably victimized other people before you or your child, whomever you're advocating for, and there'll be more. Um, this epidemic is never going to go away if people don't start raising their voice. And trust me, I know it's not an easy subject. Um, I don't want to be talking about it. Um, but I thought once this came across my lap three times, I thought the, the, there was something in that message that this was my purpose and I have a voice and I know how to use it. And um, I just, there's too many kiddos out there that need help and protection and advocacy. And we have a justice system that's extremely broke. It's extremely antiquated. And we have, you know, systems that don't communicate with each other, you know, not just computer systems, you know, for as reporting structures, but criminal systems that don't talk to each other, you know, advocacy centers that aren't talking to police stations. And, you know, um, so much is wrong and so much needs to be changed. Amen. And I, I also really appreciate the language you used around like, well, Nobody wants to talk about this, but that's not really the point. If it's happening, it needs to be talked about. 
And hopefully someday we could get to the point where we don't have to talk about it because it's not happening. But until that day comes, it is so important that people like you are using your voice and advocating for yourself and your children. And it's not easy. I know it's not. I mean, I know it's tough. I know it's it's tough to think about. It's tough to deal with, um, whether it's yourself or your child or someone close to you, a friend, a family member. Um, and, you know, the worst thing people can do is to ignore it. I've had that done by many people that are close to me. Well, that's clearly not helping the problem. So it's not. Um, I think, you know, people don't know what to say, but saying nothing is more hurtful than saying, I don't know what to say, but how can right. I help? You know, right. it's a lonely road and it can be made different if society looked at it from a different way. Um, right. You know, it reminds me of that Mr. Rogers quote, anything that's mentionable is manageable. Well, I like that. I've never heard that one. Isn't that good? Yeah, it's, it's, and that can be true for a personal experience, but I also think it's true for some of these bigger systemic issues as well. You know, if we're not talking about it, then we can't do anything about it because we're pretending it doesn't exist. Um, and that's not really an option if we want things to get better. You're absolutely right. Um, I would really love to know too, um, I have a couple, like a two-pronged question. The, the first prong <laughs> being like, how, how are, what is your kiddo's healing journey looking like right now? So, you know, it's much different for both of them. Um, Macy, she's gone through a lot of depression, anxiety. Um, you know, there's a lot from her because, you know, she obviously dealt with years of the emotional and the verbal, um, and the mental abuse. So she's dealt with that. Um, so she's had a lot of psychology, um, and, you know, cognitive behavior therapy, CBT therapy for that. Um, she got to a point where she was basically very introverted and kept to herself and didn't want anything to do, um, with anybody, understandably, um, you know, that's always, you know, a, a reaction, I guess, for a lot of people. Um, that's how people handle it. Um, she's now on the up and up and, you know, she started Voices of Change with me. And so she's starting to advocate for teens. Yeah. It's I'm really proud of her. Um, she's really taken ownership of what's happened to her and, um, you know, she's a survivor. She's not a victim. She's a survivor. She wants to help other teenagers to empower them, to let them know, you know what, it's okay. I mean, it's not okay. It's never okay that it happened, but it's okay if you speak of it. And if you tell, like, it's not something to be ashamed of. And, you know, that other people shouldn't be shaming you or blaming you. Um, so I'm really proud of her for that. She's definitely taken a definite 360 turn where she was even a year ago. Um, Evan, he has been in therapy for, in, in psychology, um, doing the CBT therapy as well. His psychologist is nothing short of amazing. Um, he has gone above and beyond to help him heal and to get him to a point where now it's, it's really cute. He'll say, you know, I need some Evan time where he didn't know how to communicate that even a year and a half ago. Um, so he, his communication skills, as far as how he can address internally, he might not be able to really communicate what's bothering him, but he'll know like I'm feeling anxiety or, you know, I'm sad or, you know, he, he's able to address those things where he couldn't. So, but I'm a huge advocate for psychology, psychological services, mental health services are so needed when abuse has taken place and there's nothing to be ashamed of. I mean, it's, it's only helpful. Um, so for both of them, I mean, I've had them in both psychology or and psychiatry. Um, 
Macy finally did start taking some medication. She was reluctant at first. Um, she's hoping it's very short term. She doesn't want to rely on it. Um, but she did say she got to that point and she said, you know, I do think I, I have to do something. So I was proud of her for making very smart decisions, um, not knee-jerk reaction decisions, you know, very smart, thought-out decisions, um, informed, definitely. And I don't know if, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I laugh that, you know, she calls me that, you know, but, you know, the helicopter mom, but I, I think that communication line with your kids is so crucial in today's society because of, I mean, so many epidemics, it's not just sexual abuse. You know, we have, you know, there's still alcohol out there and there's, you know, the opioid epidemic and suicide is still high. You know, I mean, there's all these things and a lot of times they'll feed off of each other, you know, bullying, that's still, you know, extremely big issue. You don't hear about it now, but it's still a big issue. Social media. And bullying is just another form of abuse. I've got to say, um, I know we call it bullying because it's often between minors and that feels like a more palatable term, but um, bullying is abuse. And a lot of people who are bullies grow up to do, to do that in their intimate relationships to their families, friends, children. So um, to me, intervening, you know, with bullying is a prevention measure to help keep people from becoming abusers, to be honest. Um, it's, it is an interesting, it, it's, a, it's an interesting pattern and we often don't do a great job as a society of like connecting the dots. Um, I think there's a lot of hope when working with children who are bullies to get them, you know, intervention. But if that goes unchecked, that those behaviors don't just go away. And if, you know, I think a lot of times, a lot of these kids don't have those relationships and those role models um, to be able to have that guide. Um, and I think that's a real disadvantage for so many kids or they're just relying on the internet. And, you know, a lot of these kids are on their phones and, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, my kids have their phone time, um, but, you know, that needs to be limited um, and you need that family time. And, you know, it can't just be relying on you know, those kind of devices and, or throw them in front of a TV and you lose that quality time and that interaction and getting those inner feelings out. And I think a lot of this, I can't say it could be avoided. I mean, I don't think anything's avoidable, but I think you could help decrease things, um, you know, with those interpersonal relationships, you know, talking instead of, Texting, <laughs> you know, we have all gotten so good at doing that, right? Hundred percent. I'm guilty. I know. Um, <laughs> oh God, we all are. It's it's a drug. I mean, it's, it it's we're all using them for a reason, right? And there are a lot of conveniences around them too. I mean, I don't always think, you know, I think we villainize technology a bit and for some very justifiable reasons. But you know, um, there's some really wonderful things about it too. It's more about well, I used to do youth prevention and. Um, one of the things we talked about is like having a critical gaze that it's not always about like, do you watch that show or not watch that show? It's about having enough skills so that if you do watch that show, you can stop and say, Oh, that's not healthy. That's not okay. That's not representative of reality. And it can create a bit of a buffer between just like absorbing it straight into the old brain and allowing it to like shape the way we see the world and then the way that we treat others. If you can have some protective measures in place, have that critical gaze to be able to say like, oh, that's problematic. Then you do have like protective measures against just like completely consuming it without any type of, you know, second thought. Um, so I do. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that piece as well. Okay, so I did want to back up too, because I did say that I had a two-pronged question. Um, my second prong is I just really, um, I, I kind of want to check back in with you a little bit and your experience, because you're a survivor too. Um, and I'm sure you've had to have like your own healing process in all of this, as well as having to be an advocate for your children. So you kind of got a bit of a double whammy. Um, 
when it comes to yeah quite yeah really yeah a triple whammy for reals and then quadruple if you want to throw in all of the freaking justice system crap on top of that so i mean you yeah i want to talk about you and just um what does your healing journey look like in all of this too so i have been seeing i mean still to, to date i still see a psychologist um because when you deal with, you know, 17 years of abuse, it's not a light switch. You just don't turn it off. Um, and it's amazing how many things can take you back. And you don't want to live in the past. I mean, I, it's definitely not my goal. But there's things that, you know, will happen and it's, it's very hard. You know, he ruined my self-esteem, my self-worth, my self-confidence. And, um, that's taken a long time to rebuild. And, um, I definitely don't want him to have that power anymore. Um, because he doesn't own it, but again, it's just something that it's, it's a work in progress and it's something every day I have to work on it every day. And, you know, you're going to have setbacks. And I think because of all this with, you know, the challenges of, you know, not only what I've had to go through since 2016 with, with all this, um, but, you know, just Evan having special needs um, and dealing with all that, the therapies and, you know, and all that and doing that as a single mom for all those years. Um, I, you know, that adds the strain and the stress. And I'm not a person that I, I have a very hard time asking for help. I'm just one of those people. And I, that's probably not a good thing. Um, that's just me. That's, I've always been like that. But I also am a person that I talk about what I go through or what I've gone through because I want support. I don't want sympathy. I'm not a person that wants sympathy. And there's a fine line between those two words. No, but that's a really helpful reframe. That's a very helpful reframe. And I think it is because, you know, I've seen a lot in my life and I've seen a lot of people and even to date, and I know some people and, it's always the, the, the poor me, you know, look what happened to me. Look what, and that's not attractive. And I know some people just have a hard time with things and I'm not making light by any means. Everybody handles things differently, but I've just always lived by, okay, yeah, this sucks. <laughs> you know, it sucks. Wouldn't have wanted to go through it. Um, wouldn't want to do it again, but what can I take away from it? How can I grow from it? What can I learn from it? Kind of an attitude. And I think that's just always helped me because you can't stay stuck in the moment. You have life goes on no matter what. Um, and if you keep dwelling on things, you don't have that opportunity to move forward and then you're wasting so much of your time. So even though I'm still seeing a counselor, I'm not letting my life pass me by. You know, I'm working internally on me. And, you know, I choose to still see her for my own benefit. Um, I definitely, in the beginning, it was more for me to re rediscover who I was because I lost me. I, I didn't know who I was. Um, he stole me. I mean, he stole my identity. He stole everything about me. Um, which is to be yourself and to know who you truly are is so critical. Um, so I had to find that person and like that person. Um, and I think that's huge. And I didn't understand that for a long time, but then I did. And, you know, that helps you. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I will say. Yeah. I mean, having that sense of self can only be. <laughs> can only be a benefit I'm, I'm sure yeah but I will say I did when this all happened um when Evan when Macy disclosed and then Evan disclosed I had sunk and I hit rock bottom and 
I got to a point that I never, ever imagined ever getting to in my life. And, and I did have a bottle of pills in my hand. And my husband, I mean, he's, he's amazing. Um, he, luckily, he walked in. And that was the moment I realized, you know what, I have too much to live for. Like, I know this is a lot. I mean, my God, <laughs> this right. is a hell of a God. <laughs> I mean, who, anybody that can tell me differently, right. you, you figure it out. <laughs> no one <laughs> would. I don't think there's a single person who would say that that's yeah. not a lot. <laughs> yeah. But I think at that moment, it was like, oh my God, like both of my kids have been sexually abused or well, sexually abused, sexually assaulted. Um, I'm going through two court cases. I mean, it was just like everything like hit me and it was like, I was depressed. I, I, I just, I've never hit so low in my life and I never want to feel like that again. Um, and I mean, fortunately, like I said, he, he walked in, he grabbed the bottle of Xanax out of my hand and, um, I am forever, forever grateful to him for saving me that morning. He did. I mean, honestly, I, I don't know that I'd be here right now. Um, but I realized in that moment what I have and what I have to live for and that my, both my kids need me. Um, my husband needs me. I mean, and I also realized, you know, that was pretty much when Macy and I decided to start our foundation. And I realized the need for the advocacy for, for this. And um, it, it was a big moment for me. So as much as it's like, you don't want that to happen. You don't want to get to that I, moment. No one plans for that. That's no one's like, yeah, no one's like, mm, I think this is, uh, this is where I would like to be. It just right, is, right. you know, <laughs> right, right. it just is. Um, yeah. I really liked your language too around like, it's not that you want to stuff it down or not talk about it clearly, but this idea of like moving forward or like, how do you stay present without getting stuck? You know, there's, there's a difference between like being honest and being open and being present. And then also getting like, I, I imagine like water going down rain when you're just swirling and swirling and swirling and you get stuck. You know? and I, it sounds like, you know, that was like a real turning point and you were able to start making some moves forward and for your kids and for your husband, but also for yourself. Because like you said, you had lost your, all of your identity, but you were able to, you know, I need to, I need to be, I need to be here for my kids. I need to be here for my husband, but you have a right to like, want to be there for yourself to say like, I'm worth it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I like myself enough and I have a, a clear enough sense of who I am that I want, you know, to be here and continue to live this life and experience it. And, um, that's just really powerful. And I just, you know, thank you for being so vulnerable and open about sharing that piece of your story. Cause I think that's a common, a much more common experience than most of us want to probably admit, you know, um, but we know by the numbers that it's, it is a common experience. And there are a lot of people who've experienced trauma or, or not who experience suicidality on some level. And it's so relatable to understand why you would have gotten to that point, but also really hopeful to hear that you've come a long way since then. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, we're, we're right, you know, around the hour mark. And so I think if it's okay with you, I'd kind of like to wrap up. Um, but I usually like to end every episode by asking the guests of the podcast to just kind of sum up, if you could, for any survivor or secondary survivor, you know, which you were in the case of um, being there for your kids. Like if you are the loved one of someone who's experienced abuse or assault, if there's something you could tell them, any message you want them to hear, any word of advice. Um, I'd just love if you could share that with whoever might be listening. Um, the best advice I can give is if you're the person that's been through the abuse or going through it, to go with your gut and to get out. Um, you know yourself best. You get one shot at this life. 
you have to live it how you want, not how someone else wants you to live it. That's huge. Um, and you have to feel safe every day. Um, and you have to be happy with yourself and you have to know yourself. If you're the loved one of someone that's been through it, support them, be there for them. Let them know you're there. Um, if they're reserved in not wanting to be forthcoming with information, at least let them know you're there. And when they're ready, that you're there to talk, to cry, to yell, whatever, because the worst thing you can do is say nothing because that pain is just a pain you don't need added on top of everything else because it's it's something you don't want to ever go through and even though you can't say you empathize and have been there and that you understand from that standpoint you can say you empathize um there's a big difference yeah i mean it's shitty enough to have to go through all of that anyway but to have to go through it alone with no support is even worse. And I loved your phrase, I want support, not sympathy. Gosh, that resonates. And I think it, it will with a lot of survivors. We're not looking for people to feel sorry for us. We just want to feel like we're not alone. Yeah, I love that message. Well, Nicole, um, on that note, on that very powerful note, might I add, thank you. I think we will kind of call it a show. And um, again, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the podcast and for being so raw and vulnerable and open. And um, I know that this episode will help a lot of people. And so I'm just really grateful for your willingness to be a part of this. Well, I appreciate you having me. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Be sure to subscribe and don't forget to check out our online community at weareher.net. If you or someone you know has experienced abuse or assault, you can always call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233.